This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Law enforcement across Colorado is trained to use words over weapons when it's appropriate. Denver's sheriff described this as verbal judo when we talked with him recently, and this technique is required under his department's new use-of-force policy. I hadn't heard that term, verbal judo, so I asked Sheriff Patrick Furman to expound. You know, it really is using interpersonal communication skills to deal with with behavior. What does that sound like? Take me into the jail and paint us a picture of what that looks like and sounds like. You know, you've got individuals that have a lot of different things going on. They're in crisis mode. You know, somebody may be schizophrenic and may be hearing, you know, 50 different voices in their head. It may not be that they're not listening to you. It may be not that they're not hearing you. So our deputies need to kind of understand that and, and look at that from a different perspective. The sheriff's department in Denver is spending a million dollars this year to train deputies in crisis intervention, including verbal judo, which is actually a brand name. The technique is also called verbal de-escalation. And we wanted a lesson in it. Jamie Brower is a police and public safety psychologist with Nicoletti Flater Associates. It's based in Lakewood and consults with law enforcement. Jamie, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I want to start with this idea of someone being in crisis mode, which we heard from the sheriff. What exactly is happening to the brain when someone enters crisis mode? When someone enters crisis mode, what really is happening is that their perceived ability to cope has been exceeded. And so they end up actually dumping chemistry into the brain that helps them respond to the crisis. And that chemistry can actually, in large enough quantities, short-circuit the brain a little bit so that it's not as effectively problem-solving, it's not as effectively coping or de-escalating itself, hence the need for some of the de-escalation skills that we're you know, working to teach law enforcement currently. Let's mock up a situation in which you might use verbal de-escalation. Yeah, and law enforcement have actually been using verbal de-escalation skills since law enforcement began. And it really is the ability to initially establish communication with someone and then utilize active listening skills, generate some empathy so that we can create rapport, and then we can move into problem solving and then finally getting the individual to do what we need them to do. And so it could be any scenario, anything as simple as you know, working through a neighbor dispute or working through someone who perhaps is in a full-blown crisis and they haven't taken their medications or, you know, they've been removed from perhaps a shelter or because they've, you know, they're irritated, agitated, and they're yelling and they're shouting. Okay, so let's start at the top, getting them talking. What does that sound like? You know, it's as simple as good morning or good afternoon. Just help me understand what's going on, sir, ma'am. Um, and from that and information, I would, I would glean something that would lead me to empathy. I, I find that a fascinating idea. Why is empathy important? And how do I draw that out from, from that initial contact? Well, what you'll hear from folks a lot of times is if they're really upset or if they're in crisis, they'll say, you know, it's been a bad day. It's been a bad day. Or, um, yeah, I got upset and I might have yelled at her and I might have done this or I might have done that. Um, But it's been a bad day. And so for an officer to be able to say back, okay, let me make sure that I heard you right. You know, things haven't been going well. Here's what's happened, you know, this afternoon. And and you're really having a bad day. You're really struggling today. Do I have that right? And when you feel understood and that somebody's actually taking the time to hear you for a second, 
um, it really does help build rapport. And with rapport, then we can move people into the problem-solving phase of, okay, but now we've got to figure this out. And in this engagement, have the chemicals that you talked about, you know, being dumped into the brain, have those subsided somewhat? Like, is this working with the biochemistry? Um, It does. And to some degree, and I should be careful, you know, there are some folks who are so escalated that a verbal de-escalation technique won't be effective. Mm. So again, good starting point, and we'll certainly give it a whirl. We'll we'll give it a try, but it may not be effective and we may have to use other de-escalation techniques. But usually if we can talk to folks and kind of put words to their emotional state, you know, even with anger, if we've got somebody who's really mad, you know, if you can vent, even if you think just, you know, you and I or anybody, if we can vent for a second, we often de-escalate naturally on our own. And granted, law enforcement can't allow people to vent for, you know, an hour, but they can certainly allow them, you know, give them a second to be heard. I think that there are people who would say it's never right to raise your voice or be frustrated around a cop. But I think what you're saying is, an officer that's doing his or her job might actually be allowing someone to to vent a little. Absolutely. Well, in law enforcement get called into situations where there are people who are very angry and they're scared or they're hurt or they're really upset. And that's not new for law enforcement. The mm-hmm. issue, and I think the, you know, where we run into a problem, and this is the hard part for law enforcement, is that oftentimes folks are directly angry and directly hateful toward law enforcement. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And a couple of weeks ago, we spoke with the Denver sheriff, and he used a term we hadn't heard before, verbal judo. That's actually a brand name, but it refers to the idea of verbal de-escalation, making sure that situations don't get out of control, not with a gun or a taser, but with your words. And we're speaking with Jamie Brower, who trains in de-escalation techniques. What would you say to someone who hears this and says, duh, um, like, why does there need to be training in this? This sounds like, you know, a normal conversation you'd have with a frustrated friend. These aren't skills that need refining. Right. And on the lower end of things, it definitely would appear that way. And so what we also cover in CIT is the more advanced skill set. Okay. And, and what does that stand for? Critical incident training. Okay. Critical incident teams training, actually. And what it, what it really takes a look at as well is, is dealing with folks who are very escalated, folks who have various mental health conditions that would complicate the interaction when really it's, it's not indicative of violence. It's instead indicative of, of a condition. And so what we try to do is actually educate on, look, these are the various mental health conditions. Here are some of the behaviors and what you may see because they have to learn how to understand mental health um, and mental illness as well. And I think we ask an awful lot of our officers um, mm. to have to do that. But when you work with the community, I mean, they're, they're a little bit of everything. They're law enforcement, they're social workers, they're, they play an incredible role. Yeah, and the Denver sheriff uh, in our introduction suggested that you might encounter someone who's schizophrenic. And that would mean Absolutely. that would mean that they might be seeing something you can't see. Absolutely. Uh, what, yep. would, what would that interaction sound like? Typically, what we do is we don't want to challenge their reality. We mm. don't want to tell them that what they're experiencing isn't occurring because to them it is. 
We also don't want to necessarily buy into it because when we buy into it, we could actually make it worse and make it escalate, thinking, oh, my gosh, wow, even a police officer says that they can see it. What we want deputies and what we want officers to say back is, you know what? No, I don't. But I understand that you do. And I can only imagine how frightened you must be. And so we flip it back and we really focus on the emotion that's probably driving the individual. When officers take this training, do they do so kind of rolling their eyes or are they willing participants? You know, I would say back in the early 2000s when we started CIT, when some agencies started, you know, little bits and pieces of it, I think they were rolling their eyes thinking, how is this different than what we do every day? And I think what we've been able to develop, and I think, you know, Denver Sheriff's Department is a good example, Denver Police, some of the other agencies in the Denver metro area, what we've been able to establish is, look, the bottom line is the more we know about human behavior, the easier it will be for us to to utilize the escalation and get folks to do what we need them to do. Is there evidence that verbal judo or verbal de-escalation techniques work? Uh, have Has this been studied? I mean, it certainly sounds nice, you know, to, to right. be empathetic yep. with someone, but I suppose one could look at these high-profile shootings by police and say, hmm, this isn't having much of an impact. Sure. And, you know, I think each agency would have to monitor their own de-escalation strategy outcomes. And I guess I would say that, you know, success rates, we haven't monitored them, the best to my knowledge anyway, through Denver or the sheriffs or locally. But what we've monitored is, you know, a decrease in the number of complaints against officers and deputies or a decreased number of use of force incidents um, when we can utilize de-escalate, verbal de-escalation. But I think throughout the country, the other thing that we tend to miss sometimes is that verbal de-escalation is only effective if the individual that we're engaging is willing to talk with us. You know, on the law enforcement end of it and, you know, detentions and corrections, yes, it's important. We want them to start with de-escalation, but we also want the community to start talking to law enforcement, detentions and corrections and engaging them as well and giving them the opportunity to help them through things or access resources. And so I think it, you know, across the country, it really requires a complete restructuring of how we see each other and the relationship between community and law enforcement detentions and corrections. I wonder if it changes how police see themselves. It strikes me that with these techniques, you've got to be incredibly emotionally intelligent and maybe even extroverted. I just can imagine someone who got into the profession for whom these behaviors don't, you know, come naturally. Right. Yeah. And I I would say that I feel like sometimes... Um, the public perception would be that most law enforcement corrections detentions don't have that skill set. But I guess I would say back after working with law enforcement for well over 16 years, I actually believe that most of them do have that skill set and they exercise it every day. And I think what we end up seeing are the folks that are the outliers that end up getting themselves in trouble. Um, And unfortunately, it ends up smearing or connecting to all law enforcement, but there are law enforcement every day working with our homeless population. There are law enforcement every day working with folks who have mental health conditions, and they are incredibly empathic. They are incredibly helpful. They will buy these folks groceries. They will take them so that they can, you know, access services. They do incredible things. Jamie, thanks so much for being with us. 
Thank you for having me. Jamie Brower is a police and public safety psychologist with Nicoletti Flater Associates, a Lakewood police and public safety consulting firm. See the five steps in verbal de-escalation at cprnews.org. Coming up, there's a lot of focus on candidates this election year. We have the fact that there will be many issues to vote on as well after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Welcome back to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. They are busy counting signatures at the Secretary of State's office to see which statewide measures qualify for the ballot. And it looks like Colorado voters will have much to decide this fall. Before that mammoth ballot arrives in your mailbox, CPR's Megan Verlee has a direct Democracy 101. In recent weeks, petitions came in for eight different ballot measures. Some campaigns dropped their boxes off quietly with little fanfare. Others turned the grunt work into a photo op. We are now going to grab some boxes and take them upstairs. 24 states allow citizen initiatives, but few of them use it as often as Colorado. This year, California will take the prize for longest ballot, but our state is likely to be in the top five. And that's bad news for groups trying to get these initiatives passed. More measures means more no votes. Citizens' initiatives only pass around 40 percent of the time, and a crowded ballot drives their chances even lower. Wendy Underhill runs the elections program at the National Conference of State Legislatures. People do skip over those that either they're not interested in, they don't understand, or they're just tired and ready to get out the door. And then if they're going to still go ahead and vote, it'll be no, no, no. Getting on the ballot here can cost more than a million dollars, but it's still cheaper than lots of other states. Josh Penry runs ballot campaigns for EIS Solutions. He says there are two other reasons why national groups in particular like to test their proposals here. One, this is a swing state. So if you can sell it in Colorado, you can sell it anywhere. And two, most of Colorado's initiatives are constitutional amendments, not just simple law changes. Put it in the Constitution, it's there forever. It becomes, for a special interest group, kind of a, you know, a shining example that you can hold up and remarket across the country. So those dynamics are all at work, and that's why the voters can expect to have a long sit-down with their ballot when it arrives in the mail. Penry's not a neutral party here. He's working on an initiative to make it harder to amend the state constitution. And it's likely to have a lot of company. Only one measure is on the ballot for sure, a single-payer health care system. But eight other measures have submitted signatures and are awaiting approval. There are two proposals to limit oil and gas development, two to change how Colorado conducts primary elections, one that would raise the tax on tobacco products, one that raises the minimum wage, and one that allows doctors to help terminally ill patients end their lives. That's quite a grab bag of public policies. But they do all have one thing in common, says Elena Nunez, director of the liberal open government group Colorado Common Cause. History has shown that oftentimes there are issues that the legislature doesn't want to tackle, and the only way to bring reform about is to take it to the people. Think recreational marijuana or campaign finance restrictions, two things that couldn't get through the legislature but won favor with voters. The Citizens' Initiative essentially makes voters a fourth branch of government— Josh Penry, who was a Republican lawmaker before he got into the initiative business, says groups can abuse the process. Unfortunately, it can become a tool for, you know, sort of blackmail, too. Like, if you don't give us what we want, we will, you know, try to jam this down your throat with a few million dollars and a bumper sticker slogan. Penry says that can lead to hasty and poorly conceived laws. Initiatives can also be a bit of a Trojan horse. Rick Ritter heads RBI Strategies, a progressive campaign shop. 
He says groups are often looking for an issue with the power to turn non-voters into voters. Those are rare, but Colorado Democrats recently hit on one, marijuana. I got at least one phone call from a major Democratic National Committee individual who said, please get the marijuana potency initiative on the ballot. That was a short-lived proposal to limit the strength of legal weed. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm working for the other side, the no side. He said, well, we want it on the ballot because that'll bring out 18 to 30-year-olds. Ritter says the only other issue he's seen that can really turn people out is an increase in the minimum wage. That's something Colorado voters may get to decide on this fall, as long as they don't throw their pens down in frustration first, looking at that long and crowded ballot. I'm Megan Verlee, CPR News. And we have the pleasure of Megan's company in our studio now. Thanks for that overview, Megan. No problem. I want to focus on one initiative you mentioned in your story that's an effort to make it harder to amend the state constitution. Why don't we start with how that process works now? Well, currently, amendment campaigns have to gather around 100,000 signatures to get on the ballot, ballot signatures. And then they have to convince 50 percent plus one voter to, to approve it. And what makes Colorado unique is that that is the exact same bar that regular law changes face. Like statutes. Exactly. Mm. So there's no disincentive if you're a group considering a ballot campaign for going to the Constitution versus making a law change. And there's a very big incentive to go for an amendment. And that's that the legislature can't touch it. The legislature can overturn simple law changes. But once something's in the Constitution, they don't have the power to do anything about it. Interesting. And that explains why most of the measures on the ballot are constitutional amendments. They like that kind of Uh, force field around the measure. Why are people trying to change this? Well, there are two reasons. One's symbolic and one is practical. And on the symbolic level, some people just say this is not what a constitution is for. I I talked about that point with State Representative Lois Court. She's a Democrat. She's also a government professor, which I think colors her views here. And she tried four times in the legislature to put something like this on the ballot. Uh, She's not officially involved in this effort, but this is something close to her heart. And she says that if it's too easy for citizens to amend the Constitution, it can actually undermine the role of elected officials and end up making them less effective. I mean, I can't tell you how many times at town halls or neighborhood meetings or wherever I've had people say to me, well, why don't you do this or why don't you do that? And I've said, well, I can't because such and so is in the Constitution. And they say, well, change that. Well, I can't. (laughs) You can, but I can't. You know, undermining representative democracy is a pretty highbrow argument, uh, but there is also a lot of practical opposition to having an easily amended constitution. Once voters pass an amendment, the only way that it can be changed, adjusted, tweaked is with another ballot measure, which rarely happens. So opponents say that puts the state at risk for a lot of unintended consequences. All right. This brings us back to this year's ballot measure. Backers call their effort raise the bar. What does it do? It does two things. It makes it harder to get a measure on the ballot and then harder to pass it. Harder to get on the ballot because they would now have to collect signatures in all 35 of the state's state Senate districts. Currently, petition gatherers just kind of go to major metro areas. It's faster. It's cheaper to get signatures there. Now they'd have to go across the state. That would be a lot more difficult and a lot more expensive. If they reach that, though, they then have to convince 55 percent of voters to pass the measure. Not Not just 50. Exactly. Mm. Not that 50 plus one extra person that Mm. they currently have. Uh, There is one exception built into the measure, though, and that is that if you want to take something out of the Constitution, it only requires 50 percent of the vote. And that's because a lot of the groups that are backing making it harder to amend the Constitution 
are pretty unhappy about some of the stuff that's already in there uh, and have some aims at trying to pull some stuff out in the future. Does this proposal have organized opposition? It does. Uh, one of the most vocal supporters of keeping the Constitution relatively easy to amend is Colorado Common Cause. They say, first off, that it's not easy to pass a ballot measure. So it's, uh, you know, they say the bar is high enough already. They're a liberal open government group, and they take a very different view of the role of the state constitution than the one we heard a little bit ago from Lois Court. Well, you know, I think there's a fundamental difference between state constitutions and the federal constitution. And the state constitution really sets out broader parameters for how our government should function. And if you make it so difficult to put anything in there, you really are restricting the people Now, one reason Common Cause takes uh, access to amending the state constitution personally is that they got burned about a decade ago. They passed a campaign finance law change and the legislature messed with it. Did they go back to voters with a constitutional amendment? They absolutely did. Amendment 41. It turns 10 years old this year. And what's kind of interesting is that both sides in this debate use it as an example for why their position is right. How is that? Well, for Common Cause, campaign finance reform is the perfect argument for why voters need relatively easy access to the Constitution so they can pass things that lawmakers might not want to have to live with, like good government governance measures. But people on the other side say that Amendment 41 is full of unintended consequences and inflexible rules that they haven't been able to change and update. And one example of this that I've covered a little bit over time um, is that political action committees under Amendment 51 are required to file campaign finance disclosures if they spend more than $200. Now, federal courts have said that bar is too low, but the legislature hasn't managed to change it in part because it is literally written into the Constitution. Right. This state constitution amendment 41 there. What are the politics on this issue? Does it break down by party? It doesn't really. The coalition behind Raise the Bar has both Republicans and Democrats in it. Hmm. I'd say kind of on a general level, the business community is pretty tired of ballot measures, especially constitutional amendments. They want to have fights over things like oil and gas drilling and minimum wage at the legislative level, not in the court of public opinion. Uh, On the other side, you've got Independence Institute, which is a libertarian small government group, and Common Cause, which is a liberal uh, open government group, coming together, both fighting this, both saying, you know, this is restricting the citizens' right to to determine what's in their constitution. Sort of under the strange bedfellows title, I suppose. Exactly. And then there's this third force, the voters. And polls have constantly shown that voters are very much in favor of citizen initiatives. And the last time they were asked to make it harder to amend the state constitution, they did not agree. Yeah, I remember that. It failed. Backers must think they have a shot, though, this year if they're trying again. They definitely do. Uh, you know, that last attempt, <laughs> you and I both remember it, but it was Eight years ago, uh, the organizers this year say they've got sort of a a stronger campaign in place, probably some more money. uh, And they say voters have had eight years to hear more and more about the unintended consequences of various citizen initiatives and might feel differently this time. Thanks, Megan. Thank you, Ryan. CPR's Megan Verlee covers state government and elections for us. Coming up, from Jerry Garcia to Elton John, pictures of rock stars rocking it at Red Rocks. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Red Rock's amphitheater is turning 75, but long before the stage and seats were built, it was celebrated for its natural acoustics. The first known concert took place there on May 30th, 1906, when Pietro Satriano and his brass band performed on a makeshift wooden platform. Since then, Red Rocks has hosted thousands of shows. 
G. Brown, director of the Colorado Music Hall of Fame, which is based at Red Rocks, has written a history of the amphitheater. It's called Red Rocks, the Concert Years, full of really spectacular photography. And G. Brown, welcome back to the program. Good to see you, Ryan. What can you tell us about that first concert? Pietro Satriano was known for performing at Lakeside. Uh, amusement the amusement park. park. Yes, down here in Denver. And they managed to drag him up uh, the mountain. You got to remember <laughs> back then, there was no C-470, no I-70, no Alameda Avenue, none of the uh, main arteries to get people up there. So maybe they did it by covered wagon. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. But uh, they, they got him up there. Basically, uh, in those early days, uh, they were mostly acoustic tests just to see if it was worth uh, having entertainment up there. It was known to locals as Red Rocks, but it carried other names, Garden of the Angels, Garden of the Titans. That's back when it was privately held land. Uh, and then uh, Red Rocks Amphitheater christened, as you noted, 1941 on June 15th. And that's how we know it today. That was the transfer from private to public, I guess. Yes. The city uh, purchased the land uh, in the late 20s. It was dormant for a few years until uh, the CCC was brought in, the Civilian Conservation Corps. That was part of uh, FDR's New Deal, getting people to work. And it's amazing, Ryan. They had a truck, but that might have been their only piece of motorized equipment. Red Rocks was built with dynamite and picks and shovels and wheelbarrows over the course of seven years. Uh, Pretty astounding. And so the recovery from the Great Depression is what gave us Red Rocks. So indeed, in 1927, the city of Denver buys Red Rocks for $54,000. Such a deal. Such a deal. Not necessarily back in the day. But um, uh, the amphitheater was, was really the vision of a man named George Cranmer. There's a park named for him. Maybe you've seen that name in Metro Denver, Cranmer. Who was he? Uh, George was uh, a successful businessman around town and was uh, friends with the political regimes at the time, got named to a position where he was able to execute things under the guise of parks and recreation. And he saw the vision for Red Rocks. He had traveled over to Italy and seen some of the old coliseums and such and Mm. knew that Red Rocks could be its equivalent here in America and was uh, was very steadfast in his efforts to get it built. And it opens June 8, 1941, so 75 years ago. Who performed there in the early years? The earliest years were mostly symphony orchestras, New York Philharmonic, uh, for instance, a lot of opera singers, Lily Pons, Robert Merrill from the Met, uh, and things of that ilk. Uh, it was kind of a highbrow entertainment yeah. center. The first rock and roll concert at Red Rocks was supposed to be this dude. Hello, Mary Lou. Goodbye, heart. Sweet Mary Lou, I'm so in love with you. Yes, Ricky Nelson was scheduled to perform August 14, 1959, but it was rained out and moved to the Denver Coliseum. So what was the first rock show at Red Rocks? Well, it's fuzzy territory, Ryan, in terms of defining rock. Okay. We had the Kingston Trio, Peter, Paul, and Mary. That, were they, not, were they part rock. of the great folk scare of the early 60s, or were they popular music as opposed to rock? Yeah. Uh, I would say that the Beatles' performance in 1964 uh, was the tipping point. Okay. Uh, and that show, uh, if I may proselytize for a moment, has gone down historically as 
the one show on the Beatles' uh, originally announced itineraries of their two American tours that did not sell out. Only 7,000 tickets sold out of the 9,000 capacity. At the time, it was ascribed to two things. One, the distance up to Red Rocks. If you were a kid in Cleveland, you could take the bus down to the auditorium downtown and see the show. But at Red Rocks, if your parents weren't taking you, you didn't have a shot. Also, Igor Stravinsky, the world's greatest living composer at the time, had just played at Red Rocks for $3, and the Beatles were charging $6.60. So these long hairs from England coming over and pillaging our local economy, uh, it, it was untoward. However... You look at any photos from that show, and there are people spilling out over the rocks. There's 10,000 people there. It's oversold. Freeloaders. Well, what it was, Ryan, uh, is that every kid in every high school knew that you could sneak into Red Rocks without a ticket at the time. Concert <laughs> security, as we know it now, was non-existent. It was a mountain park exclusively. And as soon as the lights went down and the crowd roared and the cops looked to see what the commotion was about, about 3,000 people ran into the bathroom and then integrated themselves into the amphitheater. So this is August 1964 with the Beatles. Uh, Just a few years ago, we interviewed someone who was there. That's Catherine Keller of Boulder. She was 12 years old that summer. We got there really late, which was probably about 5.30 or 6. And we got seats in the very back at Red Rocks. And that didn't make me happy. But nonetheless, it was my lot in life. And the Beatles didn't come on until 9.30. They played for about 27 minutes. And in fact, we couldn't really hear any of the words to their songs because the equipment they had wasn't that great. We were way in the back at Red Rocks, and the screaming was overwhelming. Got something to say that might cause you pain. I got you talking to that boy again. I'm gonna let you die. What you heard there was actually recorded at the Hollywood Bowl a few nights before, but it gives you a sense of that deafening scream. How do you think the Beatles concert changed Red Rocks as a venue? Well, it just set the tone for the younger generation to utilize Red Rocks. Again, before then it was uh a little more highbrow, and then all of a sudden it was the the teenagers with disposable income coming up there. Uh, kind of a tough history for Red Rocks in the 60s. Riots at a Ray Charles concert in 1963, Aretha Franklin in 1968, um, infamously Jethro Tull in 1971. Yeah, what happened then? June 10th, 1971. It's really one of the most infamous crowd disturbances at Red Rocks. Uh, it was a different time. Cops were pigs, music was free type of type of mindset among some people. And Tull had sold out a show. Uh, there were a few thousand people who were willing to wait outside and just hear the music, but a few rabble-rousers got them going, and the police drew a line uh, and used tear gas, dropping it canisters from helicopters. Goodness. Uh, it was quite the scene. The wind shifted and blew the tear gas inside the amphitheater, where the crowd had no idea what was going on outside, but I've always given great credit to Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. Had he not performed, it would have been much more of a sordid tale in Red Rock's history. But he uh, choked his way through a set and uh, kept everyone entertained. Uh, However, it did result in the banning of 
rock shows, if you will, at Red Rocks for five years. Soft rock acts like Peter, Paul, and Mary, John Denver were allowed to perform. Uh, but it wasn't until America was booked in 1975, the city considered them a little too edgy, <laughs> uh, which is a debatable thing. Uh, so uh, Barry Fay, the concert promoter at the time, took the city to court and won, and that opened the floodgates. The Red Rock Summer Stars started and evolved into what we know now. We're talking about the history of Red Rocks. G. Brown from the Colorado Music Hall of Fame has written Red Rocks the Concert Years. And I'm glad you brought up Barry Fay, the late concert promoter. In uh, 1968, he began booking shows at Red Rocks, really helped put the venue on the map, I think. Yes. Uh, he fell in love with Red Rocks as soon as he saw it. Uh, some interesting exercises up there, uh, notably Jimi Hendrix performing on a bill with Vanilla Fudge and Soft Machine. Everyone assumes that was a legendary performance, and uh, by everyone's account who was actually in attendance, it was one of the worst concerts of all time in terms of the equipment showed up late, didn't function, Hendrix was frustrated, and didn't really deliver his A-game by any stretch. Huh. Faye was the promoter behind one of the most famous concerts at Red Rocks. And I'm talking about U2's performance, June 5th, 1983, which was famously captured on video. Here is uh, Barry Faye in 2008 talking about how the lousy weather conditions that night actually helped make the concert quite memorable. All the things that were wrong went to make it as great as it was. And I also, I should say, I had Neil Diamond in town the same night at McNichols. I was supposed to go down there later and say goodbye. I mean, say hello, goodbye, whatever you want to say, but I couldn't move. You were riveted. R riveted is the right word. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pacer, but I don't think I moved 10 feet. The whole, I just stood there, and it's such a cliche, overused word, magic. But it was. You knew you were witnessing something extraordinary. Was there a song that sticks out in well, your Sunday, head? Sunday, bloody Sunday, when he comes up with a flag and starts marching in place, and you look up and it flames, and, and everybody is down front at this time with U2 signs and the banners. It was surreal. You were there that night covering the concert for the Denver Post. Yes. What do you remember? Just seeing a, a young band who I had championed for a few years uh, turn everything that was a disadvantage to their advantage. It really was memorable. I chuckle when I hear Barry talk about that show because he was the one person who was vociferous in his desire to move the concert, postpone it, cancel it, move it to another venue. Because the weather and, was not great. Uh, it was foggy. Yeah, he was flying in from Los Angeles, and when he heard the show was going on, he had uh, one of his famous conniptions. But, uh, <laughs> uh, he, <laughs> uh, but uh, the band had invested every nickel they had into doing this. They got on the radio, called every radio station in town, begging kids to come out. I am uh, always fond of... Uh, remembering the Edges quote that he'd like to thank the man who invented the wide-angle lens because it made the 5,000 kids who were there look like uh, an arena full. Right. I think there were there was like helicopter coverage of that concert that they had hired and, a, a bird to go up. Yep. Uh, that bonfires on the rocks. Uh, Michael Hutchins of NXS, uh, several years later when his band performed at Red Rocks, they showed up. And said, where are the bonfires? They thought, it, <laughs> they thought that stuff came with the place because they had seen the U2 video so many I times. I see. 
Uh, so many artists have performed at Red Rocks over the years. Really some of the biggest names in popular music. Bruce Springsteen, John Denver, The Grateful Dead, Fish, Widespread Panic, Radiohead, Bob Dylan, The Lumineers. Let's get contemporary. Dolly Parton, just recently, Willie Nelson. How is it, G. Brown, that the Rolling Stones have never performed at Red Rocks? I've just never synced up with... Um, their touring schedules, they toured every three years starting, uh, about 1966 then 69, then 72. And they'd kind of already outgrown a 9,000 seat capacity venue at the time. The Who never played there either. Roger Daltrey performed as a solo artist, but, uh, the two other, uh, benchmark acts of the British invasion, uh, did not perform at Red Rocks. Remarkable. These days, there's a concert at Red Rocks nearly every night in the summer. It it doesn't necessarily feel exclusive anymore. Do you think that Red Rocks has lost any of its, oh, I don't know, its luster? Uh, I wouldn't state it quite so uh, dramatically in that I have to celebrate the more generous use of the facility. That's what it's about. It's a a mountain park first and foremost and a concert venue as well. And anyone who can see a show there or utilize that stage, uh, I'm all for it. But to your point, I do miss the days when it was a career benchmark, like playing Madison Square Garden, something that mm-hmm. acts had to work to attain. Uh, and yet whenever I interview musicians, um, if it's on the occasion of their first performance at Red Rocks, it's still a pretty special thing for them. It is special. You cannot change that. Thanks for being with us. Always good seeing you, Ryan. Thanks for the support. G. Brown, director of the Colorado Music Hall of Fame and author of Red Rocks, The Concert Years. We'll be right back with... People's curious jubilance for a furniture store. In the meantime, here's some Dave Matthews live at Red Rocks from 1995. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. We were above, you were standing underneath us, we were not. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The furniture store with a cult following is eyeing a second Colorado location. IKEA says it's identified a site in Broomfield along I-25. The company does not have a timeline yet. Back when the first Colorado store opened in Centennial in 2011, we dug into IKEA's history with Maria Pereres, curator and scholar at the Nordiska Museet, Sweden's main museum of cultural history. Maria, thank you for being with us. Thank you for uh, having me. On Facebook, there's a a fan site to the Colorado IKEA store, and these are just a few of the comments from people eagerly awaiting it to open. Uh, One person writes, a dream come true. Another person says, I'm so excited. I've been waiting a decade for this. I no longer have to go to Minnesota for Swedish meatballs and my Scandinavian jelly. We should say that IKEA serves food in addition to furniture. Why do some people feel this strongly about a furniture store? Because it's family fun. That's how it has become in Sweden, at least, that I work in a museum. And I think a lot of Swedes much rather go to IKEA when they have a weekend off. And uh, they go there and... uh, They shop and you always come out with all kinds of tea lights and napkins and things that you didn't know that you really needed. And then you go and have your meatballs and buy some chocolate and lingonberry jam and whatever. 
And also IKEA is such an institution. I was just talking to my husband about like uh, telling him that I was going to be on the radio and uh, and we were saying that when we got married there's even such a thing as the IKEA test. That means that we we were given an IKEA stool as a wedding present from some friends with the idea that if we manage to put that stool together we will have a good marriage because we can collaborate because usually <laughs> also the the instructions are so complicated <laughs> so well, we should say or, that people flock to IKEA to buy furniture that they have to assemble themselves mhm and that's the original idea, because when IKEA first opened, uh, and especially their third store that opened in Stockholm in 1965, which was a huge event, and there were lines all around the building, and and the whole idea was that you did all the job yourself because you went to the storage shelves and pulled down the flat packages and you came home and you had to assemble the furniture yourself and that's how it was. And of course, it was a big challenge to the other ordinary furniture stores who were proud of their expertise and their knowledge and their service. And then IKEA opened and it was just a warehouse and uh, but with interiors that you could be inspired by. IKEA's been around for a while longer than people might think. Yeah, it actually started in 1943. Ingvar Kamprad was only 17 years old and he was an entrepreneur thinking that he might as well start his own business and at that time he sold the new invention of ballpoint pens and other things. And uh, then in 1950 he started with furniture and the first catalog came in 1951. And say his name for us one more time. Ingvar Kamprad. And if you want to know what IKEA means, it's Ingvar Kamprad Elmtaryd Agunaryd. And tell us what the last two words mean. Translate that for us. Well, it's actually the family farm where Ingvar Kamprad comes from, Elmtaryd, in the village of Okay. So he starts really in the business world when he's a teenager. And mm-hmm. how does what he, he does in the furniture realm catch on? Well, one big thing that happened in Sweden was when they opened in 1965 in Stockholm, it was exactly the same time as the Swedish parliament had decided to build one million apartments in 10 years. This was a time also when the the Swedish economy was booming. So, of course, there were huge amounts of people moving from the countryside and smaller towns into the new suburbs around Stockholm and other cities. And they all 
needed furniture. And the first store, it's funny because it's all around and it's actually inspired by Guggenheim Museum in New York, you know, the Frank Lloyd Wright building. So you have to go the circle. And and it's really how it is in the IKEA store. You just have to pass by the bathroom section, the kitchen section, the living room section, and there are hardly any shortcuts, or at least it's very difficult to find them. So so that's also how you come out with, with all these things that you didn't know that you needed when you entered the store. So socially, historically, um, the time was right for IKEA, I guess. It was perfect. Yes, it was perfect timing. IKEA prints catalogs, millions of catalogs each year. Yes, it's actually only the Bible that has a larger print run. It's amazing. <laughs> and, uh, well, the catalog, it's, it's printed in almost 200 million copies in 27 different languages. And I find it interesting, the fact that we can find everything online and uh, we have the stores and... Uh, at least in Sweden, a lot of people have these signs on the on the mailbox saying that, oh, please, no advertising, no, we don't want that. But only the IKEA catalog, please. So, and I do that myself. No solicitations, please, but the IKEA catalog is an exception, I guess. Yes, and... Uh, Recently, there was a, some investigative journalists who wanted to show that IKEA was not paying as much taxes in Sweden as they should. But the interesting thing is that the Swedes, they are up in arms. If anyone criticizes Ingvar Kamprad, people get very upset because they just love the founder of IKEA, which is interesting also. You started at the beginning of the interview by saying that what is amusing for people is going into Ikea and buying stuff you didn't know you needed. We've talked about the fact that Ikea makes furniture for the masses cheaply. And, And some will hear this and think, this is not sustainable. This is perhaps coming at the expense of the environment. Can you speak to that for us? I think you are absolutely right because furniture has become consumer goods in a way that it never was before because just a few decades ago when people got married, they bought furniture for life and that's not the case anymore, unfortunately, because of course there's a lot of waste. What you're implying in that answer is that IKEA doesn't build its stuff to last a long time. The idea is that you might have it for a few years or a decade or so. Is that is that accurate, do you think? I think that's uh, in general nowadays uh, how we look at interior decoration. But then, of course, IKEA has uh, different levels or different lines. My sense is that in some ways, IKEAs abroad are ambassadors for Sweden, uh, that they are symbols and representations of your country. Is that something you like 
Well, I do, actually, because I, I must admit, when I lived in New York and studied, I went to Ikea in New Jersey, and I, I thought it was really neat and really fascinating also to go there and see the images of beautiful Swedish nature and get the meatballs and get the Swedish chocolate and ginger snap cookies and whatever. But of course, it is an image and one image of Sweden, but they are, of course, very aware of what they are doing. Well, Maria, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, you're welcome. And now I'm hungry for meatballs. That's a conversation from 2011 with Maria Pereres of the Nordiska Museet, the Museum of Swedish Cultural History. IKEA is eyeing a second Colorado location in Broomfield. With Anthony Cotton and David Hill, I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.